Good evening. I'm uh, Robert Sindler. I'm the managing partner of Third Place Books, and I want to thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, it's great to see all you guys. Um, I want to thank you for supporting uh, independent bookstores, buying your books at locally owned businesses like this one. It's that kind of support that lets us have the bookstore that we have, have the selection we have, do pr programs like taking authors into schools, things like that, and also have awesome events like we're having tonight with Garth Stein. So thank you. Um, we have actually, uh, it's kind of a big evening plan. So I, I've, I'm going to go over everything so you know what to expect, you know what you're watching, and you can really kind of get the most out of it. So uh, first and foremost, obviously, we're um, here to celebrate. Uh, uh, last week um, was the, uh, the release of A Sudden Light, um, Garth Stein's fourth novel. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Um, and I couldn't be more proud that uh, we are the first bookstore in Seattle that he's doing an appearance at. So I was very grateful to Garth that he chose third place books. Um, you know, it's interesting as a bookseller, I get to, I, I, I get to meet a lot of authors. Um, I get to know a lot of local authors and you see people who have some, you know, kind of modest success, kind of get a little bit more modest success and their reputation grows. And, and every once in a while you do see somebody who actually kind of like goes to the, the next level. It's rare when you see somebody go to the level that Garth went to with Art of Racing in the Rain. Uh, you know, it sold 4 million copies, uh, over 4 million copies uh, worldwide. It's in, I don't know how many different languages. Um, and what's interesting about that for me is that, you know, while that's rare, what's even more rare is that the person who wrote that book is somebody who's kind, generous, um, who was already supporting uh, bookstores like ours and other independent stores, was already supporting and really part of a writing community, and that after that success, he used that as an opportunity to actually engage more with local arts organizations with local bookstores, with writers. He founded, he's co-founder of a group called uh, Seattle Seven Writers that supports writing and reading throughout this region. And you cannot meet a writer in Seattle who does not have a Garth Stein story telling about advice that he gave them, uh, somebody he connected them with. Um, and that's pretty rare. Um, all right, but we're here to talk about uh, a, a Sudden Light. Um, I... Um, a couple people are going to be up here talking about it a lot more than I am. Um, but I will say, um, you know, people are going to get a lot of different things out of this book. It is, I don't think I'm giving away too much by saying it is a great ghost story. It's an unusual ghost story. Um, it has some wonderfully unforgettable characters. Um, it's a great book about uh, fathers and sons. Uh, for me, though, even though I knew, Garth had told me a little bit about the book, and I'd heard about it from people from his publisher, and I knew it was set in Seattle, what struck me most that I wasn't prepared for when I read it was how much of a Seattle book it is. It's the kind of book that it's not a historical novel, but it has so much Seattle history in it. And it makes you look at the roads um, around you differently, the creeks, uh, the architecture, houses, um, and certainly trees as well. Um, so... Um, We've got a few things going on tonight. Um, joining Garth um, tonight will be Steve Scher. Um, we'll be talking about the book. Yes, absolutely. Um, you all know um, Steve um, as a longtime um, local uh, uh, public radio host. Um, Steve is now um, currently, among other things, he's the scholar in residence uh, down at Town Hall, and he's doing a project there called uh, Taking Root, Where Are You From? And if you want to interact with that project, um, there's a couple ways you can do it. There's an event at Town Hall on Friday, October 17th. There's also a Facebook page where you can interact with that and learn more about that project. So Steve will be here. He'll be interviewing Garth. He'll be talking. 
Um, Garth's going to do some reading. And also tonight, if you haven't noticed already, we have, um, we have, we have um, the Bushwick Book Club. And so I know a lot of you are probably in book clubs and you think your book club's kind of cool. Well, <laughs> it's not. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so um, these, these guys, <laughs> thank you. Uh, these guys, uh, they read books. They, they are engaged in literature. They're engaged in uh, talking to people about literature, but they're also engaged in writing original songs about literature. They've written three original songs about A Sudden Light, which um, they're going to perform tonight. Um, and uh, performing with uh, the Bushwick Book Club tonight are Joy Mills, uh, the band By The Way, and Ryan Barber. Um, and one last thing to note, um, at Garth's suggestion, um, which I thought was a great suggestion, um, third place books will be donating a portion of um, the, the proceeds from uh, all the book sales of Garth's books tonight um, to the humanities of Washington. And Garth is generous enough going to match that. So if you're thinking about getting some early, you know, holiday shopping done, you know, you can get copies of Sudden Light, you know, for friends. Um, if they're kids, um, Enzo Races in the Rain, like the cutest book you've seen in a long time. Um, just get a stack of those. Every kid you know needs one. Um, so, um, so we've got the band. We've got uh, discussion. There will be time for Q&A um, with Steve and Garth later. Um, but to kick it off, we're going to start with the Bushwick Book Club. Thanks a lot, guys. Good evening. Thank you very much, Robert. My name is Joy. I'm joined by Tom, Amy, and Jeff. Um, we are part of the book club, which is many people. We're really glad to be here tonight. Many thanks to Garth and everybody um, to have this treat to get to have an advanced copy and read this great book and write a song from it. So um, I wrote this song inspired by many of the things Robert alluded to, the trees, the Northwest, definitely the ghosts. Um, I will always take a chance to write about uh, a ghost. And so I wrote something that incorporates a lot of the imagery and a lot of the themes and um, is a little bit of a conversation with the spirits, um, including the trees. It's called Break and Bend. Certain moments never leave us, certain hunger never ceases, and you reach out like the branches seems to hold you in crooked arms, and where the wind where do we go? your shadow got no choice now but to listen the bond of memory open season and tell me now do we break 
story ends I never did say much to you I never did say much at all Tell it to me now Break it to me now Silence is not that golden thing Found a message Secret passage Hands through the cobwebs This hidden cabin And what the rain gives Fair and furtive Houses haunted By trees and spirits As though we're wanted By ghosts who hear us And tell me now Do we break and bend and tell me how through the rain and wind and tell me now do we break and bend and tell me how through the rain and wind and tell me how the story Thank you very much. That was uh, oh, Tom Parker, Jeff Larson, Amy Zoe. Thanks again, you guys. More music from uh, Bushwick coming up. I'm going to have this problem here. I'll just do this. It's nice to see you folks. Thanks for coming out for this. I, uh, my name's Steve Scher. I uh, got to interview Garth uh, last, I guess last spring, before I made a transition and uh, away from KOW. And uh, it's partly his fault, really, because uh, we were talking about another book. And uh, I only could really talk towards the end there. We only had room for six, eight, maybe 12-minute interviews. 12 was kind of getting a little long. And uh, I don't know, I think, as Garth said, we went for 25 minutes and then uh, turned the tape recorder off and went for another 25 minutes talking about fathers and sons and kids. And he just had so much to say. It was such a great opportunity to just have a conversation. And so getting to read this book, getting into his head a little bit, was like that opportunity again. I, uh, I think Robert's right about something that we were talking about earlier about um, music and writing and the other art forms starting to come together and people doing interesting things around, around the region. Um, I don't ever think I've experienced what people call the Seattle chill or the Seattle freeze. Maybe you folks have. But I, I never really felt that way. I always felt like this was a very connected place. 
and, and, and that people were connected in part because of what most of us uh, who moved here chose, which was to be connected to the land and the, and the, and the history of, of the people who were a part of this land. And that always seemed to be a big part of what made it easy to reach out to people. I had uh, lunch with Garth down in uh, Georgetown, and I, it was his neighborhood. We were walking around, and these were the people he knew, and here's the building, and oh, do you know the history of that building, and you know the history of this building? So I think we're lucky to have storytellers and, and artists and, and musicians who are exploring our, our landscape in a way that, well, doesn't seem very cold at all. It seems very warm. So with that, Garth Brooks, as you know, award-winning novelist, The Art of Racing in the Rain. I can give away a few things. Uh, no dogs in this book, suddenly. So, that, so you can just hold that. Hold that to yourselves as you read this book. It's a great book. Garth's going to read a little bit, and then we'll talk. Did I say Garth Brooks? <laughs> I like that. Garth Brooks is here uh, in the background. Garth Stein. That's a quite bit later. He is going to put on the hat. Yeah, that's quite that's quite brilliant. That's uh, my whole like I've heard everything. Right. It started with uh, 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 if you, if you go back in the old days, Lord Garth from Star Trek, and then it, then it was of course Garth Vader, and then the world according to Garth, and then it, and then it was oh Garth Stein, the Jewish cowboy, um, and then it was Party On. So, I've heard them all, Steve. That was very funny. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks all for coming out. Uh, and thank you to my mother. Where's my mother? Wave your hand, Ma. Thank you. Thank you, Ma. You know, uh, I, I'm going to be uh, 50 <clears throat> soon. And uh, I used to come here to this uh, very building. There was a Lamonts up here. And... Uh, and there was a ballet school. I think that's actually still there, uh, downstairs. And my sister had ballet classes. Uh, she hated it when she had to do these those toe shoe things, and then her feet started to like bleed and all that. It was a disaster. But I was little enough that I just got carted around everywhere um, in my mother's Peugeot 504 light blue with the sunroof that leaked. And so we would always come here. And my the only way my mother could get me, I guess, to stop whining and complaining is there was a, a ice cream place down on the ground floor there um, and for some reason I got it in my head that black licorice ice cream was good it's, it's not <laughs> it's really not but I used to get a black licorice ice cream cone and uh, so I'm, this is kind of somewhat hometown for me in a, in a weird way I grew up over in I went to Shorewood High School Kevin Crater is here one of my old buddies and a, and a few old uh, teachers from Shorewood are here some people from the, I don't know, are there any other old classmates of mine in the audience who snuck in without my seeing? Well, thank you for coming out. So uh, I grew up over there in, um, in Innes Arden. And uh, as my mother would say, we grew up uh, on the dark side of Innes Arden. So we didn't, have, we didn't have a view of the water or the Olympics or anything. We had a view of trees. And, uh, but it was cooler for me as a kid because... Uh, across the street from our house was Hidden Creek, um, I, I formerly known, formally known as uh, Boeing Creek, 
Uh, Hidden Creek was a great place for kids. It was now there's a lake there. The dam had been broken before that, and it was just a creek all the way through. And me and my buddies used to go down there, and we'd have fun exploring the creek and making mischief. No, there were no cell phones and no beepers and anything like that. It's like both my parents worked, and and the idea was, you know, be home by dinner, uh, which was what we had to do. Um, And so basically what me and my my buddies would do is we'd go down to the creek, and we'd burn shit. (laughs) We'd burn it. That's thus the matches that I was handing out earlier. We'd burn anything we could get a hold of. Uh, little, little bonfires, we'd roast marshmallows. But our, the favorite thing that we did was, you know those little army guys? The little green army men, you know? I don't think they're politically correct. You're not allowed to do them anymore. But when I was little, you had, we had our little army guys and tanks and jeeps and stuff. And we'd like, do little scenarios. And then, and, and, oh, yo, you blew up. And so if you got blown up, we'd pour turpentine on those guys and light them on fire and watch them melt. What, is it? Don't tell my mother. Anyway, uh, let me. Uh, uh, I, I want to read just a little bit of the uh, um, part of the prologue, just to get you in the mood of uh, of the idea of what this this story is about. And then uh, Steve and I are going to have a little conversation. We're going to have some more music. And again, thank you all for coming out. Prologue: The Curse. Growing up in rural, Con- <clears throat> sorry, I'm at that age. And that didn't help. <laughs> my eye doctor told me, this is not in the book. <laughs> my eye doctor told me that uh, uh, women need reading glasses before men do because their arms aren't as long. <laughs> Growing up in rural Connecticut, I had been told the name Riddell meant something to the people in the Northwest. My paternal great-great-grandfather was someone of significance, my mother explained to me. Elijah Riddell had accumulated a tremendous fortune in the timber industry, a fortune that was later lost by those who succeeded him. My forefathers had literally changed the face of America with axes and two-man saws and diesel donkeys to buck the fallen, with mills to pulp the corpses and scatter the ashes. They carved out a place in history for us all. And that place, I was told, was cursed. My mother, who was born of English peasant stock on the peninsula of Cornwall, made something of herself by following her passion for the written word, eventually writing the dissertation that would earn her a PhD in comparative literature from Harvard University and becoming the first in her family to receive an advanced degree. Though she never did anything of note with her brilliance, she did carry it around with her like a seed bag, sprinkling handfuls of it on what she deemed fertile soil. She spent much time quoting literature to me when I was young, thus sparking my own avid reading habits. So the theme of the ancient mariner and his story, as told by poet and philosopher Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and how the mariner's story was emblematic of my family's history, was something I had heard often before my 14th birthday. The Curse. When one destroys something of beauty in nature, as did the mariner who shot the kindly albatross that led led his ship out of the perilous Antarctic seas, one will be punished. My mother told me this. My father nodded when she did. Punishment will rain down upon the offender and the family of the offender, I was told, until the debt is settled. The debt owed by my family has been paid, and then some. 
My mother believes our family's story was settled with that debt. She has always maintained an unyielding faith in the cathartic power of denouement, which is why she has chosen to go for a walk this morning rather than stay with us to hear me tell our story again. But I disagree with my mother. There is no tidy end to any story as much as, me wi- uh, as, much as we might hope. Stories continue in all directions to include even the retelling of the stories themselves as legend is informed by interpretation and interpretation is informed by time. And so I tell my story to you as the mariner told his. He, standing outside the wedding party, snatching at a passing wrist, paralyzing his victim with his gaze, I, standing with my family at the edge of this immortal forest. I tell this story because telling this story is what I must do. Twenty-some years ago, before technology changed the world and terrorism struck fear into the hearts of all citizens, before boys in trench coats stalked and murdered classrooms full of innocent children in schools across this fair land, before the oceans were thick with oil slicks and the government ceased to govern, and Bill Gates set out to love the world to death, and hurricanes became powerful enough to stagger entire cities, and toxic children were drugged into oblivion to drive up the profits of big pharma, and genetically modified foodstuffs were forced upon us without us knowing we needed to care. Before smoking marijuana at gay marriages became passe, before gay people became, eh, just like anyone else, and weed became, eh, just another source of tax revenue. This was even before another famous bill, the one surnamed Clinton, became famous for his choice of cigars. It seems like ages ago, looking back on it, no smartphones, no on-demand, nary an iPad in sight. So long ago, yes, this story begins in 1990. So that gives you an idea of the, the narrative flow of this book. It's told from uh, an older person's point of view. Uh, Trevor Riddell is 38 years old, and he's brought his family back to the North Estate, his ancestral home, which is based on roughly, loosely, very loosely, based on something that I saw when I was a kid, and I was lighting fires down at the creek. Because sometimes when you'd look up from the creek through the trees, you could see uh, the Boeing Mansion, we called it. I don't know whose mansion it was. That's just what we called it. And we could see the highlands. And so I, we always wondered, me and my friends, who actually lives up there? Why are they different from us? What, what's their background? And so that then, that long ago, I guess when I was, you could say I've been working on this book for 42 years, I suppose, because it was that long ago that I wondered what goes on on the bluff of the highlands. And it turned up in a book, A Sudden Light. And now, now, and now we will engage in conversation. You want that? That's the power chair. So when you wrote Long Neck Bottle, <laughs> it's a Garth Brooks song. I just wanted to do a callback. Just needed one callback. Oh. Uh, that is, that, that's good, though. Um, you climb trees? Um, you know, I, I, I did. I, I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, I have. Um, there's a lot of tree climbing in this. There's tree climbing in this. And what happened was when I, when I, when it started being about this timber family, I thought, what is it like to limb a tree, to climb a tree, to be up that high in a tree? And I started, you know, watching some old archival footage and stuff. And it gave a little bit of an idea, 
But I read this really wonderful book, which I recommend to you all, uh, by Richard Preston called The Wild Trees, where uh, he uh, climbs these trees with um, these researchers who are going up into the redwoods to study the canopies. And I noticed in his credits, in his acknowledgments, that he thanked a man in Portland named Tim Kovar, who's a professional tree climber. And so I got a hold of Tim Kovar, and he, I said, you need to take me up into those trees because I want to know what it's like. And it's, it's quite amazing. And so I've gone up into many trees. Many? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really like it. Um, I, mean, I mean, I don't like it until you're up into the canopy. Um, before that, because we do, it's, it's done with ropes to be non-invasive, to not hurt the tree at all. So they shoot a crossbow up and, and then rail a rope, and you use ascenders to get up there. For the first 100 or so feet, 120 feet, you're dangling by a rope, you know, yay big. And if something happens to that rope, uh, you die. Uh, I don't like that part. But once you get up into the canopy where the, the branches are thick and you can't see the ground anymore, it's really a wonderful place to be. What, what's the tallest tree you climbed? Do you know? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, just a couple months ago, Tim and I climbed. Um, a, we went about 200, maybe a little bit more than 200 feet up into a redwood, 800-year-old redwood down in California. Uh, it was pretty spectacular, really spectacular. I, I'll, say, I'll go out on a limb. I'll go out on a limb. <laughs> because, you know, uh, with the redwoods, they grow in a very peculiar way. They're so old. Uh, there's no, I mean, the, the branches are little. The, you pass these little stems at the bottom. But when you get up to the top of the tree, generally the very top has been broken off by storms or lightning or something. Uh, so at the very top that you can get to, um, the branches are big. They're bigger than a, a, a thigh, unless it's someone's big thigh. Did you find yourself hugging it, holding on to it? Yeah, I got up to the top. I remember we, 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 we climbed it twice uh, that day that we, we climbed. And we climbed it once, and I was very uh, pleased to get back down to to terra firma and then uh and then tim said to me uh, have you ever climbed uh, redwood at at sunset and i said uh no actually never have he's like meet me back here in like three hours so we climbed just before sunset we reached the top uh, just as the sun was uh, heading down behind the horizon of the of the ocean because we could see over the ocean at the santa cruz mountains and it was it was magical what you does see- it smell like what did, it, what did you hear? It's sap. I mean, it's sticky. Uh, you know, your hands uh, get sap on them. And, and so it's very much being a part of the tree. There, there are lots of different insects up there. We passed certain uh, uh, holes in the tree, and it almost looked like a rivet gun or something, very organized. And he, he said to me, uh, what, whatever kind of uh, woodpecker that goes after these, this certain um, bug that's in the bark, uh, you know, the larva, and they, they peck in a very organized, almost a punch hole. I mean, it's it, very fascinating things that go on up. The whole environment goes on up there. Well, you know, I'm asking because the, the, in the book, mm-hmm. tree climbing is a transcendental uh, experience yes. for the characters. Was it for you? Yes. I mean, you, uh, there's definitely a feeling I felt up at the top of the tree of being held by the tree. As if, okay, the tree acknowledged our uh, presence. And basically, we had kind of a deal. Like, we will, we didn't, uh, Tim Kovar is a very interesting fellow, and he's very into the, the sort of spiritual nature of it and the respectful nature of being, if someone was climbing through your hair, you'd want them to be respectful of 
your hair follicles, right? So uh, we move slowly. We're always uh, appreciative of the tree, uh, always endeavoring to not uh, scuff a piece of bark or something. Uh, But, you know, it's a moving, it's a living being. Its metabolism is way slower than ours, but still, uh, it's a living being, and it is allowing us into the tree rather than anything else. So it was really transcendental in the sense of our connection with nature. You you quote somewhere in here Arthur Kessler, uh, Darkness at Noon. Yes. Um, And... uh, I don't think we talked about this when we were eating lunch. No, no. Uh, The oceanic sense, or the oceanic feeling that he writes about. Yeah. The prisoner trapped in that room with that window, and yet uh, connected to the world through his something connects him to the rest of the world. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, you quote, you you have the care. A 14-year-old boy who read that book, so that was pretty interesting in and of itself. But you have that... You have that moment in there. I, I have to, you know, I'm going to give that one, I'm going to uh, uh, have to give props to my mother for that one. She's here, you know. Um, in the book, Trevor, uh, old Trevor's telling the story of his, 14 year, his 14th year when he's spending the summer at, at Riddell House, for, which he's never known before. And his father brings him back here and he meets his, his grandfather who may or may not have dementia and he meets his kind of crazy aunt, but she's also super hot, so he's very confused by her. Trevor has, uh, his father, Jones Riddell, has always been very reticent and, and uh, doesn't speak much about his past, at, at all about his past, and Trevor doesn't know why. That's one of the riddles that he has to figure out. So Trevor gravitates toward his mother, who's got this great literary background, literature background, and she's been giving him different things to read, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, etc., and one of the things that she gives him to read is uh, Arthur Kessler's uh, book, Darkness at Noon, which is a book that my mother gave me to read, when I was about that age, 14, 15 years old, she said, You're, you should read, you should have this. Uh, I found it a fascinating book um, and really impactful that kept with me, so I gave, it, I gave that book to Trevor. So. What was it? What was, in, what was hitting you about that book? I mean, it, it connects right back to the story of, of being connected to everything and everyone. It is about connected. It's also about finding one's own truth, Right? Because it's a story about a, a person who's uh, being held a political prisoner, and uh, there's uh, caffeine in it. <laughs> That's you'll know if you read the book what's happening with that. Because um, uh, uh, well, they live in Seattle, they drink a lot of coffee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but there's the idea that um, that. It's all about our perception of how we see things, and that's how the character in Darkness at Noon uh, ends up having to capitulate his political crimes. He gets broken down bit by bit, and it's all a matter of perspective and how this, uh, this interrogator guides him through this sort of, you know, our, our, our life is a tangled mess, and if someone can pick it apart and make it into one long string, well, we can kind of make it into any story we want, which leads then back to the epigraph of... A Sudden Light, which is a quote from Aeneas Nin, uh, which is, we do not see things the way they are. We see things the way we are. In other words, we bring a lens to everything we see. We bring judgment to everything we see. We uh, have a point of view with everything. And so, therefore, uh, what is the real truth? Uh, Serena would definitely bring up that. What is the real truth? The hot aunt. The hot aunt, Serena, yes. 
Um, did, did you read The Transcendentalist? Did you read Emerson, Thoreau, those guys? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, I read Emerson, Thoreau. Mostly, you know, I was introduced to them in high school uh, by my fantastic teachers at Sherwood High. Um, uh, I remember uh, Mr. Alderdice always had us reading uh, um, Self-Reliance, and, you know, we had, we had to read a certain amount. We had to dip into a certain amount of that. And... Uh, you know, that, that's a really, uh, that was a time period that I wanted to hearken back to. There's a great deal of change that happened in the history of Seattle. As There's a lot of, there is history in this book, but it's not, uh, it's not a historical novel in the sense that it follows a certain pattern, but it's, uh, it's a lot of touching back to history. So Seattle has a, the Northwest has a vast, long history. You go back to the glaciers, thousands of years. Uh, you go back to the native uh, people who've been here, you, the oldest in the world, 12,000 some years, you know, we can go back forever. But then you go to uh, the history of, of the white man, it, it, there's, a, there's a starting point, 1851. And then we begin the history. But around the end of the 19th century is when culture started coming to Seattle, when the money started coming in from the East, and when we needed a symphony hall, and we needed an opera house, and we needed theaters, and we needed these sorts of things. So at that same time, we were dealing with the world, the zeitgeist of our society was dealing with this ideas of transcendentalism, of our connectedness to nature. And then that, that funny dude with the mustache, Teddy Roosevelt, comes along and says, all right, conservation, national parks, Gifford, Gifford Pinchot, come here. We need to do some work here. And so the idea of the tension between the, uh, the patriarch in my book, Elijah Riddell, who's the the guy who made all the money for the family, and his son, who he sent, he sent off to go do all this schooling at Yale University and uh, uh, all the special schools in the East to raise his son well, they put in his mind these other ideas too, the ideas of our connectedness to nature. And so therefore, the tension between father and son develops. And John Muir. And John plays Muir. an important part and John in Muir. his book. That's right. Because he writes about that connectedness and the impact of trees and mountains on, on souls. Can I go as far as souls? Yeah, I'm not I think giving so. too much away. No, no, no. Uh, no, it's a, you read some of John Muir's stuff, and it's, you know, there's a great uh, essay, um, you know, Windstorm in, the, uh, Windstorm in the Forest, where he, he climbs a tree when he sees a storm coming. He climbs a tree, and he ties himself to the tree, and the, the wind is whipping the top of that tree back and forth, and it's really... Um, you know, I, I, I loved the imagery, the way he wrote about nature. It was really quite, quite wonderful. I, I think everyone should, should check it out. Some of his essays are, are pretty brief, and you can, you can get through them. The language can be a little bit um, maybe out of our modern context, but uh, the sentiment is, true, is to, true to what we believe. Well, the reason I keep picking at this, um, because uh, I'm curious about where the... Um the very deep spiritual faith of these characters, some of them, mm-hmm. comes from in your experience? Uh, uh, well, I, I think that uh, I grew you up... You weren't just looking at that Boeing mansion thinking, who lives there? It sounds like you're also looking at that Boeing mansion thinking, uh, what was here? How am I connected to it? Is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, a lot of things come to us when we're young and we don't understand why. I mean... Um, the ideas of coincidence and, and what is, is a coincidence ever really a coincidence uh, or is it something that is just, a, the, we, we can't see the connection. 
Uh, and I've always kind of believed that there are things behind, you know, if you pick behind, pull the layers back, if you can get behind those layers, there are, there are reasons, uh, there are connections that we just uh, don't see because we choose not to see because it's easier to not see them. Uh, we agree to it kind of as a social custom. Oh, you know, the, the, when you drop the marble, it's always going to go down. And we say, yeah, that's gravity. It's obvious, always. But then one day a guy drops the marble and it just sits there in space. But we can't accept that. Like, it's too complicated for us. So we say, no, 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 it's, it's magic trick. Or, oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion. Or, or oh, I, I must have been on drugs or I'm mentally ill. I mean, there are, always, there are so many ways to marginalize spirituality in this world. We, we try to mask it with science. But I think that sometimes we need to embrace these connections um, to really fully understand, or not necessarily understand, but to fully uh, be involved with our environment. Did that freak you out or anything? Do you believe in ghosts? I, I, yeah, I believe in ghosts. Ghosts as spirits? Uh, spirits. I believe in spirits. Well, I believe in spirits. Um, although I will say, have any of you been to um, uh, a book for all seasons in Leavenworth? There's a, there's a great bookstore in Leavenworth, a book for all seasons. And they do wonderful events. Pat Rutledge is the owner. She's terrific. And so they'll bring a writer out to do a signing, and then they'll have a dinner with local you know, fans and stuff. And then they put you up. There's an inn above the bookstore. And they put you up in the inn uh, after the uh, dinner. And so I went out there a few years ago and, and did a dinner for Pat. And they put me up in the – they always put me up in the Sherlock Holmes room. The rooms are all themed, right? So there's the rolled doll room, which is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and the secret garden room, and then the Sherlock – so I'm in the Sherlock Holmes room. And I go to sleep, and about 3 o'clock in the morning, the person who's staying upstairs from me in the rolled doll room starts moving furniture around. I mean, like – but like hardcore moving furniture, like grabbing, like scraping of sofas being moved or the bed being moved, like heavy duty and dropping and scraping and dropping and all this stuff. And it's going on. And I'm like, what up with this? This is like really annoying me. And I put fingers in my ears. Finally, it stops. I fall back asleep. The next morning, I go downstairs to turn in my key and to thank them and say, wonderful. How was your night? They said, I said, it was really good. But, you know. Dude up in the royal doll room, I mean, insomnia problems? I mean, is there any way we can get him a sleep aid or something like that? And, and the young woman behind the counter, she said, uh, what, what? I said, no, the guy was moving furniture all night long, scraping it back and forth. And she like, got this look on her face, and she said, you were the only one staying in the inn last night. <laughs> and I said, am I the only one who's... She said, No. Sometimes when they come in to open the doors, uh, like a book will be turned spine in instead of spine out, or a book will be reshelved in a different place. They'll be like, wow, who put this book here? Let's see. So I'm not saying that you're going to see the ghost if you go there, but you might. Did you worry at all about, uh, of course, you can, you can say, oh, it's magic realism. It's just a novel. Did you worry at all about writing a story that people would go, wait a minute. Einstein believes in ghosts? Dude, I wrote, I wrote a book narrated by a dog. <laughs> well, I, oh, I talk to my dog all the time, so oh, that I understand. Yeah, yeah, but, oh, oh, Steve, you're going to love this. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> because of this uh, whole uh, ba- uh, ban- the, uh, did you guys know the... Oh, we didn't... Did I, so the Art of Racing in the Rain was banned in a school district in Texas a couple weeks ago during Banned Book Week. Yeah, right? The dog book. The book that teaches you how to be a good person, they're going to ban that book. 
couldn't figure it out. So uh, someone it got picked up on different news sources, and uh, uh, a person who's a uh, get this a PhD candidate in literature at Harvard University wrote this very long uh, essay in the New Yorker about this whole banning thing and mentioning the different books and takes a swipe at, at The Art of Racing in the Rain saying, the most banal of all the books, The Art of Racing in the Rain. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, my, aren't we on our Harvard little high horse? And she gets to the end of it and then she quotes from my book and she says, Enzo, the talking dog from Garth's novel, Garth Stein's novel says, and she says this stuff, and I couldn't help myself. My wife said, don't do it. And I said, I have to. <laughs> so I emailed my editor at Harper, and, and I said, You've, the New Yorker has a famed fact-checking department. They are famous for, they will not let a slight go by without a correction. And so I wrote to her, and I said, you have to point out to them that Enzo, the dog, doesn't talk. Dogs don't talk. Everyone knows dogs don't talk. Their tongues are too floppy. <laughs> he just thinks loud thoughts. And I'll be darned if the New Yorker didn't issue a correction. <laughs> and it says just that. Enzo, it was in an earlier version of this article, it was implied that Enzo the dog talks. Dogs don't talk, they just think. <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, I, here's the thing. Novels aren't supposed to be documentary experiences, right? They're, they're supposed to take different elements of our life around us and co uh, construct them in a way that uh, creates a story that readers want to read. And then hopefully at the end, we'll find some kind of empathy with these characters and, and ideally reach a catharsis, you know, that feeling at the end. So uh, I, don't, I don't think we need to be bound by, by conventions such as ghosts. No, I, I, in the world that you um, allude to in the prologue, the world of today, which was you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, before all everything changed, after everything changed, in that world, yeah. there's a lot. There's not a lot of forgiveness for people stretching their creative wings. I don't know why, what, but it seems like uh, people expect even novelists to adhere to a very narrow interpretation of reality. It, don't that, you think more now than yeah, before? Now. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The digital age has really sort of sapped some something. I, I, I do agree with that. I think that's, that's an interesting point. Um, but uh, I, I'm going to keep flying in the face of it. You should see my next one. <laughs> Space aliens? No, no, better than that. But uh, I can't, I'm not going to talk about it because then uh, my agent will get mad. Because he's, he's going to hate it. Trust me, he's just going to hate it. Let, let, I'll, I'll get more serious then. Fathers and sons, tell me a little bit how you see Jones Riddell. So Jones Riddell is the father uh, of Trevor when he's uh, a young man. Um, uh, he's a, a, a difficult. He's in a in a difficult situation. I mean, he w was sort of. Uh, f there are a lot of different ways to. So his mother was very believed very much in spirituality and in this uh, the spirit world. His father uh, Samuel Riddell, who's in in the book. Um, uh, did not. And so thus being conflicted by that, uh, Jones was put in a position uh, to make choices uh, about wh how, what he was going to believe and how he was going to cope with certain difficulties that come up in his life. And he makes a very clear choice um, that rather than try to puzzle out and, uh, and even, or even regret, he just suppresses. 
And so he carries with him this burden that is uh, uh, toxic to him. It's poisoning him, and it's poisoning his relationship with the people around him. Even though he can continue a sort of a superficial, uh, I can, I'm playing a part of a father here, he doesn't actually uh, have the capacity to uh, have the contact, the, the, the intimacy of that. You know what I mean? Yes. I was wondering if you feel, in looking back on the men of this family for the last hundred years, or the men of... Uh, the generations preceding, uh, is that the standard that way that many men have been raised, do you think? Uh, I think that maybe in a different generation there was a certain amount of, uh, of, of distance, more distance between uh, fathers and sons. Um, but, you know, I got three boys myself. I have three of them. And uh, there's a, you know, when they hit, whatever, 13, 14 years old and the the antler buds start to come out, you know, the distance uh, grows. And, and I, think, I think we let that breathe, hopefully. My oldest is 18. He does come, they do come back, right? They do come back. They do. So. Uh, I think if you let them breathe, they come back. Yeah. But, but I, I like the, uh, I mean, my, my youngest is seven, and he's in the throes of, like, pure seven-year-old boy joy. I mean, he, like, it's all about throwing his body everywhere it could possibly go. You know, the physicality of a, of a seven-year-old and who I, I, just, I just love. Well, well, Trevor seems like a very modern father to me, an American father, hopeful American father, the young yeah. boy who tells the story. So I just was wondering, why do you think it's, do you think it's changed? And if so, why do you think it's changed for, for fathers in the last preceding generation to the one you're in? I, I think the conventions of, of society have changed. I mean, you know, if you look at, at the old school, uh, mom stays home, does the cooking, and dad goes off to work, uh, created a, a, a clear, clear boundaries, and then uh, weekends are dad's time. Um, but then we still have to get the work done in the yard, and we got to, you know, mow the lawn and clean the gutters and do all that sort of stuff. I think that now, because uh, the flexibility of the economy and the way things have changed, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, men take, obviously, participate quite a bit more with their kids uh, in their, their upbringing, and so there's a lot more, uh, they then have to expose themselves. I mean, we can hide, you know, we can create a distance, uh, but I think that it's, hopefully, uh, men find it enjoyable to. I, I, hopefully, I'm not making middle-class assumptions, that it's, that it's prevalent across the... Uh the culture in many forms. And I, do you think, or what do you think the impact of uh, transcendentalism in the 60s and 70s was being open to experiences through uh, drugs, through uh, the changing world, hmm. through other, other aspects of what has changed for men and women? And I was just wondering if you think, in, in, re- in writing this book, did any of that crop up for you? I, I don't think that particularly necessarily cropped up for me. I, I think that what's interesting is that the, the, the so-called dawning of the age of Aquarius, which we learned about in Hare, um, I, 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 you know the song, right? This is the dawning of... I, I think that it was the right idea, but I think it's a little, it was a little premature. Well, you could say that about John Muir and the Transcendentalists. Uh, yes, but I think no. Uh, y- 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 okay, yeah. <laughs> but but what it, part of what I wanted to do in the book is create this echo through history, 
that that I, it's said in 1990 for a specific reason, which is it was pre-digital. It was pre. It was in, it was an innocent age. We didn't have cell phones and smartphones and internet for everything. And so he has to go to the library to find something out, or he has to dig through old letters and old journals to find information. You can't just Google it. Um, at the same time, the conversation that Trevor is having with his father in 1990 is very similar to the conversation that Elijah Riddell is having with his son in, in 1890 about these exact same issues. A hundred years has passed. A lot of technological uh, changes happened. A lot of economic and social changes happened. And yet we're still having this same conversation. I wonder if we're having it in another hundred years or is it, is, is it a cyclical thing or is it just an ongoing undercurrent? I mean, that's, I wanted to have that hearkening back. That's why um, there is the historical element and, and also the spiritual element. The idea that in all of my books there's always a, a, a note of accountability for your actions. You, you have to uh, acknowledge and recognize what you've done and, and, and own it, and then you can move forward. But if you deny it, then you're going to be stuck, right? Uh, so that idea of accountability works on an intimate level, which is Trevor and his father or Benjamin and his father, but it also works on an epic scale, which is us and the environment or our connection to uh, spirituality or our connection to nature. So I wanted to have a story that was about individuals playing out a family drama in their lives, but it also opens up into a much larger conversation. At least that was the idea. Is that why you write? Do you have some accountability you're thinking about? Uh, yeah, writing? I mean, I, the, I write to. I mean, I write because I enjoy doing. I love the process, but also to uh, provoke in the reader some thought. Uh, some, I, some. I want you to think something that makes is different, or at least consider the idea that something's a little bit different. And uh, uh, ideally, what I want is for someone to read a book, enjoy the story, uh, maybe laugh a little bit, maybe cry a little bit, but then in the end, close that book and say. Oh, okay. All right. I see it a little bit differently, or, or a lot differently. But I see I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the discussion differently than I, before I read the book. So it, it should be, mean something to the reader. Uh, there's no point in just. I don't want you just to kill your time by reading my book. But I've read books. <laughs> so, so witness as a writer, you're a witness, but you're also asking the reader to. Um, Make a decision. I think any artist has to consider him, him or herself a provocateur on some level, some more than others. But you have to. Otherwise, what's, why are you doing it? There, there's plenty of jobs out there that are a lot easier than writing music or painting a painting or, or God forbid, writing a book where you sit by yourself all alone for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> Let's have the music. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, it is pretty great that you brought in musicians to help uh, yeah. bring this book to life. And, and what's going to happen with this music? Uh, the music by the Bushwick Book Club. I'm so happy they're here. Why don't you guys come and get set up? Who's that? Oh, here they are. Um, I, Jeff I met, Larson, Don Hopwood, Wes Waddell. I met Jeff. Uh, uh, we were working on some other stuff. Uh, we're going to do a show also um, in January, I think. Which is it? January 15th, we're doing a show with Bushwick, with my nonprofit, Seattle Seven Writers. And it's going to be me and uh, Tim Egan and Nancy Horan. Um, I don't know where it's going to be, but Jeff does. 
Is it here? Hugo House. At Hugo House. And so we got to know each other, and I said, you know, what I think is great about um, what we need to do in this day and age is we, we have to reach beyond. Books are books, and they're great. But with kids, with the di- di- digital revolution and the way people's attention spans go this way and that, let's try and be more inclusive. And so uh, we talked about having some songs done based on this book that then I'm going to put on my website. It's a really cool website, asuddenlight.com. And uh, has all sorts of weird stuff. We can talk about that in a minute. But they have uh, uh, really done some outstanding music, and we're going to promote it and get it out there because I think all artists, you know, I write to music, and so it's nice to know that uh, sometimes music uh, musicians write to what I write. So, all right. Thank you so much for having us here. Um, you know, instead of giving a big explanation here, you know. This is inspired by um, the woods surrounding the, the North Estate. And um, it's a beautiful old forest. And I'm going invite, to invite you guys to close your eyes, actually, and try to imagine yourselves um, you know, in those woods, maybe on the ground laying down, and then maybe getting up and running around and enjoying Mother Nature with somebody that you love.
Thank you. Walk in Cool Dark Woods, a song called By the Way, Jeff Larson, Don Hopwood, Wes Waddell. We're going to get one more song from the Bushwick Book Club before we're done. They also have merchandise out there. And uh, they have stuff. And very interesting, what you said. Music can inspire writing. Writing can inspire music. That's very cool. We're going to take some questions from you folks. Since you're not mic'd, you'll ask a question. I will repeat it. Hopefully I get it right. And, uh, and then Garth will answer. Questions? Try. I have many questions if you don't, but I, I leave you for some. So she loved the book, loved Art of Racing in the Rain. Was there pressure in writing this book from publishers to create instead another Enzo rather than such a different book? Well, I don't think of it as that. I hate, don't mean to contradict you, but I don't think of it as necessarily different uh, thematically speaking. Well, you don't have a dog. Uh, yeah, but that's just the, 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 the mechanism of storytelling. The theme, the, thematically, I think all my books are very similar. If you look at them, if you were to line them up, you, you, there's that. There is the thing about the past. There's the thing about family. Uh, uh, there's accountability. Uh, you know these sorts of things. There's always a spiritual element of some kind. Um, so, for me, I don't really see a difference. That isn't to say that my publisher didn't want. Something, uh, you know, there was a point, there was a crisis point in the making. This took me four years to write this book, and about two and a half years in, there was a crisis, and uh, we had a whole to do, you know, with a conference call and all that, and 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 then they said the words, you know, well, Garth, we don't want you to disappoint your audience, <laughs> and I, I sighed heavily, and I said, you know what, the only way I wouldn't disappoint my audience is if I wrote a book narrated by a cat who wants to fly. <laughs> and they kind of, I think they, they said, yeah, you should do the cat that wants to fly. <laughs> uh, but that's not, uh, I, I'm not, I can't do that. I mean, I have to hope that the readers who have uh, come to Enzo because they liked certain elements of it, it stays with them not because it's, got a dog in it or because it's got race cars in it, but because of the message of the book, the ideas of the book are something that strike them as. So how did you do that? How did you overcome the, the, what must have been a fear that, oh, I had such a success, how can I, if that's what you thought, top what I did? How can I meet uh, at least the success again? How did you overcome I, that I guess concern? one of the themes of, of A Sudden Light, I had, I had faith in the story. And it, it took a long time, and it was hard to do because I, at any point I could have given up on it, and it probably would have been easier that way. Uh, but I really had faith that the story would come out in a way that I was a standard that I could hold myself to, which is my standard for writing a book is it's got to be the best book I've ever written. It can't be the second best. Because if it's the second best, it's not done yet. Because 
it, it takes, I'm asking people, I'm asking you wonderful people, I'm asking readers to uh, give me their, yes, their, the money is one aspect of it, but not just your money, what's more important is your time and attention, and you've got to sit down and put yourself into a book. You know, you can't read a book while watching American Idol. You just can't, it's, it's, it's impossible. You know, you can cook dinner while watching American Idol, but you can't read a book. You need to devote yourself to it because it's in your head is where the book takes place. It's a conversation between a reader and a writer. So I need to make sure that when you're done with that book, you say, oh, wow. Okay, maybe it wasn't my fate. Maybe I, I kind of I still like Enzo. Okay, that's fine. But I wanted you to feel like you put in time that I gave you something worthwhile to spend your time on. So that when you're done with it, you sit down and you say, okay, that, that's good. How I, do you know? That's the faith. That's the faith part of it. Well, I have when when I uh, I just honestly, uh, my wife tells me. <laughs> she she tells me when it's done. She's like, okay. I, I, you want yeah. the truth, right? You, I, I'm, I know you're right. I know that's <laughs> the truth. <laughs> my wife. She you you would know if you met her. You would know. Go ahead. Be loud. Yeah, we don't so what's, what's the cover? Oh, it's gorgeous. What did you have to do with it? What's the lower? And what's, it, it's and like what's a, the it's lower reverse, It's kind of a mirror image, but we don't see what's new things are going on beneath, right? That's, okay. See, this, I'm going to tell you about my wife, Drella. She's, she's not here. Um, she, she's really good at this kind of stuff. And so they sent all these ideas, and they sent the idea of this image of the, the boy and this, these tangle of branches, but it was contained within a leaf, and it was sort of brown and green in color. And uh, it looked kind of cool, but, and it was the best idea of the ones they had given, a, given me to look at. Uh, but it wasn't quite right. And, and she said, you know, take the leaf silhouette thing away and just make it go to the whole cover. So they did that in all sorts of these different colors of yellows and browns and greens and all this. And none of them were quite right. And I was talking to her on the phone. And she said, she's like, we're talking about the cover. And how do we tell them what's wrong? And we're going back and forth. And she says, holy shoot. She used a different word. I said, what? And she said, pull it up on your iPad, on your iPhone. And I said, okay. She's like, you know, if you press the iPhone button three times on the bottom there, it goes negative image. Uh, did you know that? No. Yeah, the round home button or thing. If you go bang, 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 it flips the color so it goes into negative. And so on one of the images that they had sent us, she flipped it three times and went negative, and that was the cover. And uh, she, uh, we, we took a picture of it on the phone, and I sent it to the publisher, and I said, "That's make it like that. And they did. So I don't know. The artist who did it made those little people. If there's like something going on there, I think the idea is that there's stuff behind, that's, which I really like, the, the layers beneath and all that stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's, um, that's how it happened. It's a mystery to you, too? It's a yes. mystery to him, too. But I like the mystery of it. I like the idea that there are things that go on. The history, it, for me, it harkens to the history of, this, of the land. People have come before us uh, and have done things and have built things and have you know, eaten food and died and, and fallen in love and all these things. That, and that history, their actions imbue everything. The idea that uh, a, a, an object that is owned by someone can pick up a person part of the personality of that family that it was in or something like that. It's very, uh, 
I, I think antique collectors believe a lot of that sort of thing. Who else has a question? I have, we have two more, so sir and then, and then ma'am. He loved his books, wants to know about Raven Stole the Moon. Raven Stole the Moon was my first book. Uh, it's a, a, a spiritual, a mystical thriller. Uh, in takes place in Alaska. Uh, starts here in Seattle, but then it moves quickly up into Alaska, and it deals with the Clinkett Indian myth of the Kushtaka. Uh, my mother's side of the family is Clinkett Indian from uh, Alaska. My mother's from a small town called Wrangell. Um, you missed it on the cru- if you ever took a cruise up there. The cruise boat doesn't stop there. Um, my great-great-grandmother was a, was a Clinkett from the town of Klawak on Prince of Wales Island. And in the Clinkett uh, theology, there's the myth of the Kushtaka, which is a shapeshifter. And uh, they were given uh, uh, power by, the, by Raven to watch over the forests and the oceans and to rescue any souls that may be dying of exposure or drowning. Uh, and so they do that. They rescue these souls. Uh, but Raven never told them what to do with the souls. So the Kushtaka keep them. Uh, Clinkets believe very much in reincarnation. So if your body is not recovered in a fishing accident or you lost in the woods, they believe that then your soul is now not going to reincarnate into the family. And so therefore, that's not a good thing. So we, we need to uh, recover the body and uh, uh, they cremate the bodies to release the soul. So this is a story, it's a modern day story, but it harkens back to, again, way back into the history of the, the Clinkett Indians. And, uh, and I did set it in Wrangell, uh, in my, my grandmother's old house, which is still there on Front Street. If you want to go up there and look for it, it's there. Um, not in such great shape, but um, we were just up there a couple years ago for a Fourth of July family reunion. Fourth of July is big in Alaska. It was a lot of fun. The kids, kids love it up there. So, Your mom, like uh, Trevor's mom, Gave you lots of books to read. Oh, Put yeah. you on the path, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom, she wrote children's stories and stuff when I was young, so I always saw her working at her typewriter. She'd pay me a couple bucks an hour to proofread her stories and her books and stuff like that. So That's great. I met you because of the, your book, How Evan Wrote the Pen. Um, and I know you wrote that partially because of your sister's experiences. And you answered part of my questions about um, Raven. I was just wondering how many other of your books are based on experiences with your own family. How many of his other books are based on experiences with his own family, like How Evan Broke His Head? I think all uh, books. uh, I I think that that's the that's the trick. Is it that's not we don't quantify that and we don't we don't reveal that sort of thing. I mean, look, I could go spend a lot of time in psychotherapy and I could be a really well-adjusted person and. I'd Boring. Be, I'd be great. Yeah, but I don't. I work it out in writing instead. Um, and I think that, that that's the fun of it. So a lot of stuff has, has elements of real things that have happened to me or to people I know or to people around me or to relatives or to friends. I mean, that's what a writer does. A writer steals, and that's, that's okay. Um, then we just try to change the names a little bit or sometimes not. Uh, to protect the innocent or the guilty, as it may be, but sometimes I'll, I'll throw in the name of somebody to uh, make them uh, think twice about uh, crossing me. Um, <laughs> but uh, so yeah, there's you'll find little tidbits all over the place. But uh, it's not for me to 
you, uh, you know, when I one day when I become uh, old and, and a famous writer uh, with like five Pulitzer prizes, someone will write a biography and they can figure all that stuff out. That's not for me to talk about. One more song from the Bushwick Book Club, inspired by uh, a sudden light. Ryan, Ryan Barber, Ballroom. This is great. Thanks for sticking around. Come on up. I want to be joined by Becca Leitman. She wasn't. Thank you. So it's very intimidating to write a song for Garth Brooks, but (laughs) I'm doing my best. His book... um, was uh, was nice and uh, most of my songs are about relationships and love and loss of love and emotions so when I read his book um, I, that's what I I felt from the book some people felt the forest I felt the love and the relationships and the loss of it and all of that so this book kind of just follows all those relationships between the father and the son the sister the ghosts and it kind of talks about all of them I'm going to get nice and warm real quick. Hold on. And uh, I'm going to dedicate this song very strangely, but awesomely, to Shami. Shami, where are you? There he's in the back right there. He was my preschool kid, and he came out to watch today. So it's good to see him. This is called The Ballroom. Um, I named it. He wanted me to change the lyric, and I never changed it. So then I named the song after the lyric that I didn't change. Here we go. I'm looking for the road that I came in. I'm searching for that place that I call home. Fancy seeing you here. Funny how some things never change Are you mad that I didn't stay? Oh, my sister, it's not too late And father hears footsteps in the main room And mother dances patiently, she waits And the house won't let us escape misunderstood you got your heart on your sleeve always lost in the woods and you can climb the highest of highs but you're broken on the inside I see it in your father's eyes the love you had you had to hide and sister dances endlessly she Lies and the house won't let us survive. Let the children play on the edge of the estate. We can climb to the highest highs, the wind is in our face. 
I'm looking for the road that I came in. I'm searching for that place. I'm looking for the road that I came in. I'm searching for that place that I call home. Thank you. I just wanted to thank all y'all for coming out and the Bushwick, all the Bushwick uh, musicians uh, for your music tonight. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank my good friend Steve Scherer for coming out and having this conversation. Follow him on Twitter and learn about all the ideas and the things that he's working on right now. Also, as, as Steve said, Bushwick has some CDs from their other books. You know, they do this about uh, all sorts of books, and it's really a lot of fun. So if you want to check out their stuff, they got some cool stuff right over here. I uh, am going to go over to the den. Is that what I'm doing? I'm going over to the den to sign books. If anybody wants a book signed, um, I appreciate the support. And thank you again to Julie Ziegler from uh, Humanities Washington for coming tonight. And there's an awesome organization. You can check them out online as well uh, at humanities.org, humanities.org. And check out, like, my website. You know, oh, and if you could sign up for my newsletter and, and, and then and – then, there's more matches, and then there's and then thanks to third place and the Commons and to Wendy Manning and and I want to thank my mother <laughs> and I want to thank my agent. No, I'm kidding. No, I do want to thank my agent. Anyway, I'll see you guys over at the den. Thanks for coming out.